one announcement before we begin. As we have been running an announcement in the bulletin for the last uh, several months, this summer we are planning to have a or host a missions trip for those who are, let's say, is a rough cutoff age, 16 and over, whether you're in high school or college. This is an opportunity to introduce you to what goes on in the mission field. And we have been uh, involved in prayer support and financial support of, of Jim Myers and his work in, in Ukraine, specifically in Kiev. And every summer, they run various uh, camp programs for uh, the children in the area. Now, ca- camping is a, was a built-in system in the Soviet uh, Empire because the, that's how the Soviets would indoctrinate their Marxist-Leninist philosophies into the kids. So once the wall came down and missionaries started going in, they realized there was an already established framework for evangelism, and so they just shifted it over to hosting camps and bringing the kids away for a week or so, teaching them the gospel, playing games and other things. It's a great opportunity for evangelism, great opportunity to get to know another culture and see some of the things that missionaries go through. We will leave on the 10th of July and come back on the 24th of July. The camp will run from the 8th to the 13th, so there's two or three days at the front end to get oriented and to get over the jet lag. And then there's the week of camp, and then another four days or so after camp to uh, to do some other uh, outreach ministries that they're involved in there, going to the orphanages, going to the hospitals, doing some of the... Uh, they do things like five-day clubs as well in the neighborhoods. And we need to have a good count of who's going we have, a, I know for sure, two going from here. Dan Ingram is going to be leading the group. Dan, for those of you who don't know, Dan is going to be uh, is in his fourth year at seminary. He's a retired uh, Marine colonel, so he has the responsibility and leadership ability to at least keep three or four, or five or six kids together. I mean, I figure if he can keep a platoon or company of Marines together, he ought to be able to handle a few young people. And there's uh, a couple of uh, kids also coming up from Houston. And one reason I'm making this announcement as I am now is to get it on the front end of this tape and this message because I'm sure there are some tapers and others out there who are listening on the Internet who may uh, have a... Uh, an interest in this, may have a teenager or college a young person interested in this so they can contact us and uh, get more information. But we have about four who are pretty committed at this point, and they need to start the process of getting their, their passports, and then the next thing is to get a visa. The cost will be approximately $1,800. We don't know. It may be less than that. It all depends on airfare and what kind of a price we can get on that. But that includes almost everything the, of the, the 1800 does. It includes uh, the cost of passport and visa, which could run uh, between 150 and $200 just for those two things alone. So uh, we, have, we don't have a, an adult um, woman going along at this point, although I talked to one or two while I was in Houston who are seriously considering it. So we'll be sure the Lord will provide that along the way. 
But actually, the only time we need an, an adult um, female would be on the trip over and back because Phyllis Myers is there and a number of other uh, 20 and 30-year-old uh, women are in leadership positions over there. So it's mostly just the travel time that would be involved, and that just involves getting on the airplane and changing planes in Europe somewhere and making it in. So that's uh, the deal. If you have any interest, let me know. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we always make sure that we are ready, spiritually prepared, to study God's Word. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin we commit in life at the cross. So therefore, for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, sin is no longer the issue in relationship to salvation. However, sin does break our fellowship with God. When we sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, and as a result, we lose fellowship and we lose the filling of the Spirit in terms of producing sanctification and spiritual growth in our lives. Therefore, it is necessary to keep short accounts on our sins, to confess or admit our sins to the Lord in privacy whenever we sin. And we have the procedure and promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to focus your thoughts, put aside the uh, distractions that are concerning you about the details of life, to uh, admit or acknowledge your sins to God in the privacy of your own soul, to make sure you are ready and prepared to concentrate and to study God's Word this morning. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we come together this morning in order to take the time to listen to what you have to teach us in your Word. We know that your Word is eternal truth, and your Word informs us of everything that you have supplied us at salvation, all of the spiritual assets we received at salvation, all of the procedures and promises that apply to our spiritual life. Father, we take this time to 
submit our own thinking to your instruction, that we might be able to learn to think as you would have us to think, that we might live as you would have us to live. Father, we continue to pray for our nation at this time, that you would give our leaders wisdom. We pray that you would uh, make it possible for our enemies to make the serious mistakes, that we can take advantage of them. Father, especially in the area of this uh, uh, impending war with Iraq, we pray that uh, all of our leaders would have wisdom. We pray that you would give uh, skill and ability to our military leaders, that their mistakes would be minimal, and that we would be able to uh, bring this about if indeed we do attack, that we would be able to bring it about as efficiently as possible, that they might keep their mind on the objective, which is the complete and total defeat of the enemy as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Father, we continue to pray for our president that in the midst of all of these uh, decisions and pressures that he might continue to keep his focus on you and continue to be able to put these issues in your hands and to follow your direction. We thank you for his fact that he is a believer in his conviction that ultimately you are the one who controls history and his dependence upon you. Father, we pray that you would now challenge us with what we are studying this morning, that in the midst of these uncertainties, in the midst of the crises of the world, that we might continue to be relaxed because we know that you control the details of history and that all of history is in your hands and that it is our responsibility not to worry, not to be fearful, not to be anxious, but to rest and rely upon your provision and to learn how to live in the midst of crisis with complete and total tranquility and contentment because we understand these things on the basis of your word. And we pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we continue our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we are coming to the very last uh, part, the very last paragraph in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's important, therefore, for us to step back a minute and look at the overall structure of what Paul has been saying in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. Actually, 8 through 10 uh, is one section, one section in his development of the themes in 1 Corinthians. And in this chapter, he deals with a problem, a problem in in the Corinthian church that was a result of their arrogance. No group of believers perhaps has demonstrated the kind of arrogance across the board as this congregation in Corinth. These are not viewed as spiritually mature believers, for Paul chastises them back in 1 Corinthians 3 as being carnal, and that he could not address them as growing believers but he had to address them as if they as whiny infants. The term babe there is not a term that is normally used for a, a baby, a spiritual infant, but it's a, a pejorative term, an insulting term of someone who is should be older, but is acting like a crybaby, the kind of thing you would uh, term you would use for a teenager who's acting like a two-year-old. So it's a indication that they are completely out of line with numerous problems. And one, one of these problems that is consistent and always goes along with arrogance is self-absorption. And they're so absorbed with their own rights and their own privileges by the time we get to chapter 8 that they have no concern whatsoever for the younger, weaker believer. And so Paul addresses the issue 
of, of in terms of several spiritual laws that apply. The first we saw was the law of love, that a believer is to show and demonstrate love for every other believer, including the weaker believer, and sometimes that includes the law of personal sacrifice, that we have legitimate rights to certain things and to certain activities because they are neither moral nor immoral. They are not right or wrong. They are neither uh, prohibited by the Scriptures nor mandated by the Scriptures. And yet, because of certain cultural issues in different places, different backgrounds, different things that have been taught, there are people who have different ideas, different norms and standards in their conscience that, that aren't necessarily biblical, but yet when they see another believer engaged in a certain activity, they think that they can engage in that activity, and yet if they engage in that activity, it will lead them into spiritual failure. So Paul says that, makes the point that in chapter 8, that no believer has the right to influence or force another believer to violate his conscience, no matter how out of line that conscience might be. Then in chapter 9, he begins to illustrate how a mature believer uh, applies the law of personal sacrifice. He turns the tables on the Corinthians, assuming that their response, Paul demonstrates he's a classic debater, as he gives them the principles in chapter 8, he knows exactly what their response would be, and that would be something along the lines as, well, we know there's nothing wrong with eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. It, it, it's just meat. It doesn't, no demon attaches itself to the meat. We're not going to automatically pick up false doctrine just by eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. So why should we give up our, our rights and privileges to a good prime rib roast just because there's some... A believer around who thinks that that's a, a problem. And Paul says, well, let me give you an illustration from my own life. I'm a mature believer, and you're weak believers. And when I came among you, I had the right to take a salary and to be completely supported logistically by you. Every minister, every apostle has the right to be financially supported by those to whom he ministers. And we saw the principle laid down in 1 Corinthians 9:14 even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel and I showed you last time through a comparison of this term with uh with the term euangelio uh, which means to evangelize that these terms were often used as umbrella terms summarizing the entire apostolic ministry, which started with proclaiming the gospel, started with witnessing, but went on to unpack the implications of the gospel, which we would consider under the question, after salvation, then what? These terms are not simply to be restricted to evangelism alone. And so Paul says the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel, those who announce the good news, should live from the gospel. They have a right to be financially supported by the gospel. In fact, when we go down to verse 18, Paul even uses the phrase that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel without charge. And the implication is that the other apostles were charging for the gospel. Now, what I mean by that is uh, that they weren't uh, setting a price tag on getting into heaven, but they were saying that if I come to your church, 
you need to support me. I have a wife, I have a family, I have financial needs, and I need to be supported. Now, sometimes folks get sort of a super spiritual idea, and some pastors do, that if they go to a church, or invited to a church, as I often am, uh, and they say, well, how should I take care of you financially? Some pastors will say, I want a minimum of $1,000 or $1,500 or whatever their, their price is. Other pastors look at that and say, you're charging for the gospel. That's not right. And they'll go and they'll say, well, all I'm going to ask for is that you take up a love offering. Okay, so the only difference is a specified amount versus a non-specified amount, but the principle is they're both asking for an amount. So you can't get super spiritual and say that just because you take up a, a love offering, just because you do it on a grace offering basis, that somehow that's more spiritual. Neither one, neither is right or wrong. It has to do with your orientation and your own individual decisions. Now, my decision is always just to function on the basis of, um, of a grace offering, but that is uh, no more spiritual than, than setting a specific amount. And I understand why some people set a specific amount, because otherwise there's some churches that are so tight and have no comprehension of grace that if they didn't set an amount, they wouldn't, get, they wouldn't even get their expenses covered, and that's a shame and a tragedy. But Paul lays down the principle here that there is a right to live, for the pastor to live and gain his living, his income, from the gospel. Of course, there's those who abuse this. I'm not addressing the people who are abusing this and uh, dunning the people for money all the time or, or uh, <coughs> actually... Uh, uh, just uh, just going to the extreme of, of uh, uh, charging enormous amounts, keeping this in balance. But Paul is making a point, that, and the point he makes in the next verse is that I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things. And he says, I am not talking to you about money so that you can start giving me money. He said, I've used none of these things. In other words, I never took up a collection when I was with you. I never even mentioned my financial support. I supported myself through his tent-making skills. He says, so I've written these things so uh, just to illustrate the principle that a stronger believer frequently gives up what is, he has a natural right to for reasons that are, are for greater reasons and in order to teach spiritual principles. And this is, again, the principle that we have adopted with Dean Bible Ministries and our tape ministry and publications, that we do not place a charge on the teaching of the Word. The tapes are free. We, uh, the ministry is supported by donations. But there's no charge attached because we're trying to teach the principle of grace. That grace means you. we have all that we have uh, on the basis of the free will uh, free will decision of God to supply that salvation. Now, Paul says in the latter part of verse 15, he breaks off, showing his emotion. This is where we have a figure of speech called an apostiopesis, where a writer may be going in one direction, then all of a sudden he stops and goes in the other direction simply because he's so uh, caught up in, in what he's talking about. There's a strong emotional element. And the reason he this is very emotional for Paul is because it is part of his most profound experience, and that is his salvation. Uh, 
and he feels as if, at some level, because Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, personally commissioned him to be an apostle, he was blinded by the Shekinah, the flash of the glory of the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ at that point, and and later he was he was healed when he made his way into into Damascus, but of that he realizes that this this commission to preach the gospel to be an apostle and to proclaim the gospel really didn't leave him an option. This is a mandate in his life, and he feels that much more than anyone else. So he says, you know, if I preach the gospel, I don't have anything to boast about. This is laid on me as necessity. So he wants to do something out of it that he feels is out of his own volition, and that would then be worthy of reward. See, if you do what you do because you have to do it, then that's not something that's rewarded. You're not rewarded for what you have to do. You are rewarded for what you do that goes above and beyond the normal call of duty. So Paul wants to do something that goes above and beyond the normal call of duty in order to uh, have reward. And this is where he begins to introduce the subject of the last paragraph, that there are rewards for believers. There are certain things that all believers have in common that are part of the free gift of salvation. But there are other things that believers will receive in the future when we are in heaven that are that go beyond simple salvation that are based on how we do in living the spiritual life, how we grow and mature, and how we utilize the get the spiritual gifts and assets that are supplied to us at the instant of salvation. So in verse 18, Paul says, What's my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel without, uh, of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Now he is not saying that if you charge, it is an abuse of authority. Because back at the first part he said, don't I, don't I have a right to eat and drink like all the other apostles? Don't I have a right to take along a wife like all the other apostles? He has just said that all of the apostles have a right to being personally supported financially for their ministry, to take along their wives and the families. He's not challenging that. He is not saying that they're abusing their authority. He is saying that in his experience, he has the liberty to function the way he chooses here, just as they have the liberty to charge, they have the liberty to be supported, he has the liberty to not be supported. And that is the thrust of this passage. And then he says, For though I am free from all men, indicating that he has the same liberty as all other men, I made myself a servant to all. I'm going to function as a tent maker, as a servant, functioning in the lowest socioeconomic level as a laborer in in that society, that I might win the more. Now, this is where we start getting our introduction to the reward section in the last paragraph. When Paul came to Corinth, he he first met up with um, Priscilla and Aquila, a couple that were introduced to in the New Testament, who had as their as their uh, profession, as their uh, the way they earned their living, the business of making tents. Now, I don't think this was quite the operation of one individual sitting down with some canvas. Or, or leather and simply sewing a tent on their own. This was a major business that they owned and 
they probably employed several laborers who did the the making of the tent themselves, and they oversaw the operation. And Paul did the same thing. So Paul went into a partnership with Priscilla and Aquila. The interesting thing about this from an isagogical standpoint is that the the business, the commercial enterprise of tent making, was not indigenous to the Greek culture. Their tents were all imported. So Paul is going to work as a laborer in a in a in a business that has a a tremendous need in the Greek culture. So he's going to be able to make some significant income through this particular business. Furthermore, there was something that took place every other year in Corinth, just outside of Corinth. They conducted what was called the Isthmian Games. There were four different games in the uh, Greek area, in the Hellenic Empire, uh, Olympic Games, that were conducted, athletic contests, and the Isthmian Games in Corinth brought visitors from all over the Roman Empire, especially all over Greece, all over Asia Minor. People would travel from far distances. It would bring in people from many different cultures and would attract them to to uh, to Corinth. Now, you know what it's like here. If there's going to be a, a Super Bowl or a World Series in baseball or if there's going to be you know, a playoff with the Final Four, any major event like that, people come from miles around, and a community has to prepare for that months and months and months in advance. We just think back of, of some of the things we saw, what was it, last year in Salt Lake City with it when they had the, the uh, Olympics and how uh, in Salt Lake they had prepared for three or four years, building stadiums, building booths for all of the um, salespeople and commercial things that would come along. Well, the same thing would be true in the ancient world. And I would imagine that when Paul arrived in 50 A.D. and the games were going to be held in 51 A.D., that Paul is already thinking, what a fantastic evangelism opportunity we have here. Not only that, but they're going to need tents for all of the all of the uh, participants, they're going to need dormitories for these guys. They're going to need tents for all the people who are coming here. The weather, when, when the games were held, was in late April, early May, and the weather in Greece at that time can be slightly cool, and there can be frequent rain showers, so nobody's going to be able to just camp out and sleep in the open. So we have to set up tent grounds. We have to set up places for all the travelers to stay, and so we're going to have a tremendous commercial opportunity here to make money and to use that financial, uh, those financial resources to, in turn, uh, communicate the gospel and make an impact for the gospel and witness to people coming here from all over the Roman Empire. And then when they're saved, they're going to be able to go back to their communities and witness just as uh, Philip had witnessed to the Ethiopian uh, eunuch and who later went to Ethiopia and founded a church there and started witnessing to people there. So Paul looked at this as a fantastic opportunity. So when he says in uh, verse 19, I am free from all men. I have made myself a slave to all. He's operating at the level of a slave in terms of the socioeconomic level of tent making. That for the purpose that I might win the more. I'm going to function like this so that I ultimately will have a greater impact for the gospel than if I had just stayed as a 
simple pastor of the church and let them support me by working it puts me in an in, a, in an economic situation and in a business opportunity that will allow me to witness to more people so he's thinking in a much broader area and much broader environment and i have known some pastors who've had the opportunities to do things of this nature simply because they have an education background and they have certain uh, skills and abilities that allow them to do this sort of thing. Unfortunately, when I did my undergraduate work, I was thinking primarily in terms of academic preparation for the ministry, so I majored in history and English, and those don't exactly provide you with marketable skills. I've often, a couple of times I have been in a position where I well, was was not with with a church and I had no idea how I would ever make a living, but the Lord always took care of me. So Paul says this is the introduction to his, uh, his, his concept that he is applying this principle in relationship to evangelism. And so we saw last time in verse 20 and 21, which are verses normally taken out of context, to the Jew I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. In other words, when he was with Jews, he, he did not do things. He wouldn't eat pork. He wouldn't, uh, he would, uh, observe the Sabbath so that he wouldn't do something offensive so that he might be able to clearly uh, communicate the gospel to Jews without creating non-issues. And this is an important principle for, principle for us in evangelism, not to make issues out of non-issues. In evangelism, the issue isn't how we got the Bible. In evangelism, the issue is not necessarily creation or evolution, although when Paul witnesses to Gentiles, he always starts with God, the creator of heaven and earth. But you don't make these secondary things, not political beliefs, not abortion, you don't make those issues in the gospel. The issue is that Jesus Christ died on the cross as the Savior who paid the penalty for all of our sins. So to the Jews, he becomes a Jew. He doesn't make an issue out of non-issues. To those who are without law, excuse me, to those under the law, that is Gentiles who have become proselytes to the Jews, he functions as under the law. But he doesn't sacrifice doctrine. We saw that last time that, that Timothy he had circumcised because he didn't want Timothy's um, status as being non-circumcised to be an issue to the Jews they were ministering to. And yet when he came to Jerusalem with Titus, who was also a Gentile and uncircumcised, he would not allow Titus to be circumcised because the group of Jews there were using that as a legalistic condition for salvation. And so so in one place Paul allows circumcision, in another he doesn't, but it has to do with whether or not it, it is associated uh, with, with spirituality or salvation. Verse 21, to those who are without law is without law. In other words, when he was with the Gentiles, this doesn't mean lawless or not law abiders, but to Gentiles who don't have the Mosaic law, then he operated as one who wasn't under the Mosaic law. He would go enjoy a good pork roast. He would not mind working on, on, on the Sabbath, on Saturday. He would not... Uh, be at all concerned with certain things they were doing that might be a violation of the Mosaic Law because he knew the Mosaic Law was no longer in effect. In fact, this is a great verse on dispensationalism, that there is a distinction between Israel and the church and that the Mosaic Law was given to Israel and not to the church. 
and that nothing in the Mosaic Law applies today. Remember, the Mosaic Law is a document that should be taken in its entirety. It was a law code for the nation Israel. No Gentile in the Old Testament was ever held accountable for obedience or disobedience to anything in the Mosaic Law because the Mosaic Law was given to Israel. Scripture says that the, the, the promises and the prophecies were given to Israel, not to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles were not under the Mosaic Law. And Paul's ultimate goal in all of this is that he might win those to Christ, that he might be more effective in communicating the gospel. And so then he says, To the weak I became as weak. That is, to the weaker brother I became as a weaker brother and didn't make an issue out of things I had the liberty to do. I've become all things to all men. That's what that sentence means. It doesn't mean, well, I compromised on everything, and wherever I was, I just went along to get along. But it means that I did not make issues out of non-issues, no matter who I was with, so that I might, by all means, save some, that I might be able to communicate the gospel and see people saved through my ministry. Paul is not saying that he saves them. This is simply an idiom that by giving the gospel he might see them saved. And verse 23 says, Now this I do for the gospel's sake. This is the ultimate determiner of everything in our lives is the gospel. That what we should do, we should be doing because of our eternal perspective. We're living today in light of eternity. And this is the theme of the remaining verses. We live today in light of eternity because we know that the decisions we are making today determine who and what we will be in eternity. As I stated earlier, when we, in, when we are in heaven, some things all believers will have in common. We will all have a resurrection body that will not be subject to corruption. We will all have perfect happiness. Some will have greater happiness than others, but just as some of you have, are happy and others of you have greater happiness, that's a subjective experience, so that those of you who don't have as much happiness as someone else are not aware of the fact that you're not quite as happy as somebody else is. You see, that's a subjective, a subjective reality. And it has to do with capacity. And capacity is developed in the midst of testing and trial, which can only occur today. So there are going to be differences in terms of capacity for enjoying where we are in heaven. There are going to be different rewards in heaven, different responsibilities, different positions, uh, different um, uh, areas in which we live and operate in heaven. All of this is determined by our spiritual growth today and the development of capacity to operate in heaven, capacity and responsibility uh, to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. So Paul says in verse 23 that ultimately we have to get to that point in spiritual maturity where we realize that, that, that the criterion, that should affect every decision we make in life is how does this impact eternity? How is this related to my role as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to be an ambassador for him, to represent him in this world today through witnessing and through encouraging other believers, through the function of my priesthood in a local church, through my involvement in a local church, through my involvement in financially supporting local church ministries and missions, 
All of this means that we are beginning to make day-to-day decisions today, not on the basis of how it makes me feel today, not on the basis of how it's going to impact my life today, how it's going to impact my my investments today, not how it's going to affect my, my 401k plan, not how it's going to affect anything other than how is this going to impact uh, my position at the judgment seat of Christ, because it is at the judgment seat of Christ that where we will receive our rewards. Now, today is one of those days when both the mornings, both the first hour and second hour, we're dealing with the same subject, and that is rewards and the judgment seat of Christ. So anyone listening to the tape needs to make sure they get the uh, same tape for first or for Second John, which I believe is the around the tenth lesson on uh, March the 2nd. So we have uh, uh, two lessons that relate to one another. Unfortunately, the lesson the second hour ought to be the ought to come first and the lesson the first hour ought to come second, but we've studied this enough to where you understand the basic issues related to the judgment seat of Christ that after the rapture of the church when all believers living and dead, are instantly taken to be with the Lord in the air, the Lord will convene in the heavens an evaluation council uh, called in the Scriptures the judgment seat of Christ based on the Greek word bema. And a bema was not simply where the local tribunal sat to adjudicate certain trials in the, in the square or the center of Corinth or some other Greek town, but the Bema was also the raised dais upon which the the ruler of the games would would sit and would hand out the rewards and the wreaths to the winners of the various contests at the Olympic Games. So this is the background for what Paul says in the next few verses. He understands that we are in a race and we need to keep our eyes and our focus on the rewards at the end of the race that we might be able to surmount the difficulties and challenges we encounter in the race because we have an eternal perspective, a long distance, a goal-oriented perspective, and not simply a perspective operating on what's happening uh, right now. So the background to understanding this passage comes from understanding the game. So uh, from verse verse 24 on, the emphasis is on, on the games. Now let's look at a little background to this situation. As I said earlier, Paul would have come to Corinth and recognized the value of establishing a tent-making ministry, and he would have seen the value of this tent-making ministry in relationship to all the traders and pilgrims and passing travelers and, and sports enthusiasts who would be coming to Corinth in order to view the Isthmian Games. And he would utilize that in order to, to make it a great opportunity uh, for the gospel. Uh, there were... This, the, these games took place every uh, two years, and Paul was in Corinth for a little over 18 months, so he would have been present in A.D. 51 when the games were held. Now, the Isthmian games were held near the temple that was dedicated to Poseidon, so there is definitely a pagan religious background to the games. 
Yet Paul didn't say, oh, I'm a Christian and I don't believe in Poseidon and these pagan religions. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to be involved. See, look what, how Paul looks at this. These are the games. They may be dedicated to Poseidon, but I'm going to have a great opportunity to utilize that in order to communicate the gospel to many people. So he went uh, into this area where there was a lot, a tremendous amount of paganism. They would open the games with all sorts of religious ceremonies and rites, and they were, everything was dedicated to the god Poseidon, and everything that was done just reeked of paganism and the worship of Poseidon. Everywhere he looked, there would be uh, visible uh, reminders of this religious orientation. And yet he did not allow that to uh, discourage him and keep him from going there. There's so many superficial evangelical Christians today that if some movie has some... uh, some uh, uh, a pagan twist to it, or if they're if they go to some event and there's something there that's going on that doesn't fit their their view of Christianity, then they won't go. They just stay home. They they uh, stay away from everything. So somehow they won't be tainted. And yet, what you see in the New Testament is that the apostles utilized those events. They went there. They took groups of people with them to engage in evangelism. They were not hiding from the world around them, but they were not going to let the thinking of the world around them become their thinking. So the Isthmian Games were uh, ensconced in an in a environment that was very religious, involved around the worship of Poseidon. And it's interesting that this is the first time in 1 Corinthians 9 that Paul uses athletic imagery in any of his epistles. He uses athletic imagery many times after this, so we can surmise, I think, that Paul uh, spent time at the games and understood the games and utilized what he saw there as a background for developing some some very solid illustrations of the spiritual life. In 1 Corinthians... In 1 Corinthians 9.24 we read, Do you not know? And the way he asks this in the Greek implies, it's a rhetorical question, implies that yes, you do know this. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? In fact, there, there may be many who run, many who compete. And the analogy here is that just like in the church, church, uh, church age, There are many who are believers, many who are running the race. The race is analogous to living the Christian life and pursuing the goal, which is spiritual maturity. He says, but only one receives the prize. In other words, the prize is limited. He is not saying, don't press the analogy too far, that only one person uh, in the church can receive a prize. He's saying that prizes are limited to those who run successfully. That's why he concludes with the admonition, run in such a way that you may obtain it. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And then in verse 25, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. That means they are disciplined in all things. Temperate does not mean they don't partake of alcoholic beverages in the, in the Greek. In the Greek, the word is enkratuo, Enkratuo, which means to be self-controlled, to be self-controlled, and it relates to the fact that an athlete is has self-mastery 
and is disciplined. And any of the athletes who trained for the games were not allowed to eat uh, certain kinds of food. They were not allowed to partake of any wine whatsoever, and they were not involved to be engaged in any sex during a 10-month preparatory period when they were under rigid training. And so that's for the concept of being temperate. It's the idea of, of self-mastery. They are self-disciplined, and they are following a rigorous course a rigorous course of training so that they can be physically prepared for the contest. And that relates to the believer who is willing to set aside non-essential issues in life that are distractions to his spiritual growth so that he can run the race. And then he says in verse 25, Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. And the terminology perishable crown comes right out of the Isthmian Games. Of the four Pan-Hellenic Games that were conducted, the prize at the Olympic Games was a wreath made of wild olive branches. At the Pythian Games, they were given a wreath made of laurel branches. At the Nemean Games, they were given a wreath made of wild celery. Now, Nemea was just a, uh, a few miles uh, 12 miles southwest of Corinth. And, they were, and again, I remind you, they were given fresh celery reeds. But at the Isthmian Games, they were given a wreath of withered celery. So here it is already perishing, and this would bring to Paul's mind the fact that the best they're going to get out of 10 months of labor, 10 months of rigorous workout, 10 months of of uh, discipline, intense discipline, and then running the race in the, the winner, and there would only be one winner, and all he gets from this, they, they had some other things that went along with it, but the prize he got at that moment was just a bunch of withered celery leaves. So if they're going to go through all of that agony, in fact, the, the word in the Greek that is used for this is, is agonista, which is where we get our word agony. If they're going to go through all this struggle, self-discipline, limit their diet, uh, be, get up every morning at 5 a.m., work out all day long, go through all of the uh, intense, intense training that they went through simply for the prize of a, of a perishable withered wreath uh, of celery, how much more should the believer endure all of the discipline necessary to study the Word, to learn the Word, to, to grow and mature as a believer, because the prize that we're going to receive is an imperishable crown, an imperishable prize that is going to be ours not only through the millennial kingdom, but ours throughout all of eternity. So Paul uses this as a, as a means to, to stir up the, and motivate believers in their advance to spiritual uh, maturity. Verse 26, he says, Therefore, I run a race, I run thus, not with uncertainty. I, I'm not going to be wishy-washy about what I do. It's, it's amazing how you see so many believers who, who once they become saved, 
they come to church on Sunday, and somehow that makes them feel good. But they're not going to be quite as committed to coming to Bible class twice on Sunday morning and then on Wednesday night. Well, that's maybe just a little bit too fanatical, they think. Well, you're never going to grow and mature as a believer unless you learn to think like God thinks, unless you exchange all of the garbage in your soul, all of the human viewpoint ideas that you've collected throughout your life for divine viewpoint. You have to completely re-educate yourself You have to completely renovate your thinking, overhaul the thinking in your soul, and you can't do that once a week. If you think an hour a week is going to give you enough information to overhaul all the garbage in your life, you're fooling yourself, you're playing games with God, and you're wasting your time. I'm just going to be honest with you. You ought to just get up and go home now because it's not going to do you any good. And we're at this church, we're not about... uh, helping people play games and just sort of create some sort of delusion that they're growing spiritually because they show up and, and give their uh, uh, hour a week to God. We are here to call people to the high standard of growing to spiritual maturity and learning the entire counsel of God, renovating their thinking so that they can grow to spiritual maturity and earn rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and have an impact, not just in time, but that their their spiritual growth today will have an impact for all of eternity. So we're not to run with uncertainty, being undecided, showing up at Bible class when it's convenient, but we are going to be consistent. We're going to make this our goal. We're going to decide that everything in life, everything else in life, must be subordinate to this most important objective, which is spiritual maturity. So this is what happens when people finally catch what the spiritual life is all about and realize that doctrine, learning doctrine, isn't just something they do. It is everything they do. That the spiritual life is the most important thing, and this is the heartbeat that drives every decision in their life. Therefore I run thus, Paul says, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air, not as just a shadow boxer. I'm just not going to be in training. I'm going to be out there on the field actually boxing. See, this is another thing that happens. You get people who go to church a lot and they take notes and they fill up their uh, notebooks with all of the things they learn in class, but yet they never, they never engage in witnessing uh, they're not involved in exhibiting all the responsibilities of their ambassadorship, their priesthood, giving to the local church, uh, Christian service. Now, remember, these things are not not means to spirituality or means to spiritual growth. They're the result of spiritual growth and the responsibility of every believer. So it's not that they are to be dismissed because they're not uh, part of spiritual growth, but they are a part of the spiritual life in terms of the product of spiritual growth. So Paul says then in verse 27, I discipline, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. And the word he uses here for discipline is the Greek word hupa piazzo. Hupa piazzo, which literally means to strike under the eye. It has the idea of hitting yourself. And it's translated in the uh, old King James as uh, I buffet myself. It has the idea of I am physically, I am going to the extreme of physically controlling my body in order to bring it under control just as a, 
as a an, an excelling athlete. And remember, we're to do everything in life in excellence. We're to do everything we do to the glory of God and to the best of our ability and to push ourselves to always perform better and better. And Paul says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now, this doesn't mean he loses salvation. This is from the Greek word adakimos, which means that I would be unapproved or unworthy. And remember, at the judgment seat of Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ, there are going to be loser believers, failure believers, believers who have not grown, carnal believers who, when their works are evaluated, uh, and that word for evaluation in 1 Corinthians 3 is dokimazo. It's the same root we have here of adokimas. Dokimazo means that their works are evaluated, and those who whose works are burned up, and yet there's gold, silver, and precious stones, that means fruit of the Spirit, that if that survives, then that's the basis for rewards. If everything is burned up, they don't lose salvation, the text says. They're saved yet as through fire, but they have been unapproved. That their, their evaluation was a failure, and they lose rewards, yet they enter heaven as through fire. And this is the difference between believers who uh, take advantage of all of the assets God gives us, who continuously uh, confess their sins, they're filled with the Spirit, they're they're in Bible class week in and week out. They're listening to tapes during the week. They're renovating their thinking. They're applying the doctrine in their homes, in their marriages, with their children. They're applying it in the workplace. And they are a witness for Jesus Christ in the angelic conflict. These are believers who who are producing works that are gold, silver, and precious stones and will have rewards. So Paul says, I discipline my body. This is a a rigorous discipline. I discipline my body, bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached the gospel to others. And even Paul realizes that as much as he's done, as mature as he is, as, as far as he's come in his spiritual life, it's still possible for him to go on negative volition, to reject God, to become carnal, and to basically give up and lose all that he has gained, all that he has done, to regress spiritually and to become disqualified at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, having gone through the passage, let's summarize it and look at the uh, rewards that are given in Scripture. Just briefly cover the doctrine of rewards under the under the metaphor of of athletic analogies to rewards in the Scriptures. First point, the athlete had to go through 10 months of strict training just to qualify to participate in the games. He had to go through this rigorous training. He had to enter a registered state gymnasium, and that would be analogous to the fact that the believer is to live inside the soul fortress. He is to live in fellowship with God, what we call the soul fortress, which is made up of the uh, stress busters, the techniques, the spiritual skills that the Scripture describes are ours. You know, we've taken all of them and summarized them as ten spiritual skills, living inside that soul fortress of protection where spiritual growth takes place. We must be in fellowship with God and filled with the Holy Spirit for the training to have any value spiritually. 
and we must fulfill the training rules of the plan of God in order to continue and advance in the spiritual life. That means, in John's terminology, we must abide in Christ. Only the Christian who lives the Christian way of life in the soul fortress is qualified to compete in the angelic conflict. Second point. In the athletic analogy, there were two, several different groups of people. The athleti, the, who were the uh, contestants, were the ones who trained under the rules of the national gymnasium for ten months. You went into the gymnasium, and you were not allowed to leave for ten months, and you had to exercise under the authority of the gymnasiarch, who is the ruler of the gym. Now, this is analogous to a local church situation. If the believer is going to compete in the spiritual life in advance, he has to align himself with a local church, like the athlete to, a, to the uh, local gymnasium. He has to operate under the authority that God has established in that local uh, church, and that is the pastor. And the role of the pastor teacher is to teach the Word of God, to feed the sheep, to give them the information they need so that they can take that doctrine, apply it in their lives, and grow to spiritual maturity. Third, disqualification is analogous to carnality. If the, if the uh, athlete ate the wrong food, slipped out at night to go see his wife, uh, decided to hit the local bar and have a glass of wine, then he was disqualified and he would not be allowed to compete. They trained uh, the body and they trained the mind, but in the spiritual life the issue is obedience to God, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and growing to spiritual maturity. And the believer can disqualify himself through uh, continuous carnality and refusal to advance and stay in fellowship. Fourth, the athlete followed a set of very strict rules which constantly tested his motivation, decisions, and momentum. And this is analogous to the fact that every day we have tests to challenge us in relationship to our motivation, to challenge us in relationship to our decisions. And when we pass those tests, we grow spiritually, and it increases our momentum in the spiritual life. Fifth, Everyone did the same exercises under the same authority. Everybody was responsible to do the same thing in the gymnasium. They all went through the same exercises. They all had to learn the same uh, things. They all had to work together. Each one, it's interesting, they, they were to work. They were to be disciplined. And uh, the verb for their discipline was the verb that's related to g gymnasium, gumnadze. And it actually meant, initially, the word meant to be naked. And it, because what they, they, all the athletes operated, worked out uh, naked, and it came to be applied to discipline and the idea of stripping away everything that distracts you and that can be a hindrance to your goal. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, On the other hand, discipline yourselves, and that's gumnadze, strip off all of the distractions. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And the word for go translated godliness is eusebeum. 
Godliness is one of those old English words most people don't understand, but it comes from the old English God-likeness, in other words, to have the character of God, what we would call the development of our spiritual life and the production of the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Jesus Christ, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, uh, self-control. So this is all part of the spiritual life. Now, all the athletes, point number six in terms of diet, all the athletes ate the same food. Wheat, cheese, figs, no wine, and no sugar. In the same way, all believers eat the same food when they come to church and they listen to the teaching of the Word of God. And it is God, the Holy Spirit, working inside of each believer who converts that diet into spiritually usable uh, material that they can apply and that is uh, that the Holy Spirit uses to produce uh, spiritual growth. Point number seven, all earthly distractions were removed during the 10-month period so that they could focus on the task. In the same way, we are to remove all distractions to spiritual growth so that we can focus on the objectives that God has given us. Now, the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Two words are used in the New Testament for crowns. Two words are used for crowns. I just looked up and we're out of time, so I'm going to stop here because we want to go through the different crowns and different rewards that are available at the judgment seat of Christ and understanding uh, the nature of rewards, so we'll wait and cover that uh, next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, this opportunity to understand that, that we are living today in light of eternity, that every decision we make today ultimately needs to be made in the light of its impact on our spiritual life, our spiritual growth, our relationship with you, and how it will impact eternity. The decisions we make today will determine who we are and what we do in eternity. Father, we pray that if there's uh, anyone here this morning, they would realize that, that we're talking about the spiritual life, not acquiring a spiritual life. We're not talking about uh, gaining salvation. We're talking about working out the implications of our salvation. Uh, salvation is a free gift. It is not a reward. It is a free gift. The spiritual life, though, is based on, on rewards. It's not a free gift. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would recognize that the issue is not what they do. The issue is not their self-discipline, self-mastery, avoiding certain things, being engaged in other activities. The issue for you, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to answer the question, what do you think about Jesus Christ? The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the eternal second person of the Trinity who took on human flesh, became a man, an impeccable man, a sinless man, who was qualified to go to the cross on our behalf. And on the cross, he died as our substitute. He paid the penalty for every single sin committed in human history. He paid the penalty for every single sin you will commit in your life so that you don't have to worry about paying for it. The price is paid. All you have to decide is whether or not you will accept his payment. You do that by believing he died on the cross for your sins. Anyone can believe, so it's a non-meritorious activity. The merit resides in the object of faith, Jesus Christ. 
If right where you sit right now you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father and his omniscience knows what you are trusting in for salvation. And at the instant you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, God the Father justifies you, regenerates you, you're given a new human spirit, and you are uh, the recipient of his eternal life. All of this happens instantaneously and simultaneously. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today, that we might be motivated to discipline ourselves for the purpose of the spiritual life, that we might be willing to run the race so as not to be disqualified. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.